Well, you just heard our text this morning. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 23. We will consider these precious words this morning. If you watched our uh, online broadcast a week ago, you'll remember that I said that there are two things that I have noticed the most about the way people have responded uh, to the pandemic experience. And one of those two things is uh, the issue of fear. There's been an awful lot of fear. I'm not suggesting that it's uh, wrong to be afraid, but I will tell you that the number one command in all the Bible is don't be afraid. It is the most common command found in the Bible. Don't be afraid. So, if you've been afraid, that probably means you're normal. If you're still afraid, well, I got news for you in Psalm 23 that I hope will be of help as we contemplate. Many of you could quote Psalm 23, but some of you can't, so I'm going to read it for you. So let's read together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. All the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher in England, often referred to as the Prince of Preachers, said of Psalm 23 that there is no greater psalm in the Bible. And many have agreed with Spurgeon. So for the last 180 or so years, because Spurgeon made much of Psalm 23, those in the English-speaking world in particular have joined with Spurgeon in saying these words are among the most precious in the Scripture. It would, we'd be hard-pressed to find a chapter in the Bible more popular today. I will tell you as a funeral preaching pastor, if folks are over the age of 70... It is almost a lock they're going to ask me to read Psalm 23 at a funeral. Not always, but almost always. And that is a good thing, since I know and love this psalm along with them. But I want this morning to think with you about this issue of the larger picture of the psalm and how it impacts our reactions to all things let alone what's happened in the last three months. Years ago, I uh, 
was challenged as a college student, uh, just beginning to fall in love with the Bible, to, uh, for devotional purposes, change the emphasis in sentences that come along as indicative statements. Now, the, when I say that, some of you say, I don't know, I'm not into grammar, what does that mean? So when the Bible says something is, tells you what something is, that's an indicative statement. So, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's an indicative statement. It tells you about a reality. This is what's real. This is what's true. This is the identity that God would have you know. And so, I was challenged to change the emphasis from different verb or different words in the in the verse when it comes to indicatives as a devotional way to understand the scripture and to apply the scripture. So let me do that very quickly. Let's emphasize the word Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. Let's emphasize the word is. The Lord is my shepherd. Let's emphasize the word my. The Lord is my shepherd. Let's emphasize the word shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. There's a different feel to each emphasis, isn't there? So, for what it's worth, you like that? Use it. I stole it. I, don't, I steal only the best, so go ahead. But it helps me to think about that. So let me just do that very quickly. The Lord, this is the covenant name for God. This is the name that's often translated today, Yahweh, or or God, the Lord. You'll note in your English translation that it uses uppercase letters to describe this or to spell this particular word. It is the covenant name of God. It is the name that God gave Moses when Moses asked at the burning bush, God has sent him to Egypt, and he says, whom shall I tell them has sent me? And God's answer is, I am that I am. This is the covenant name of God, It is used more than 4,000 times in the Old Testament. It is the most common name. It is the name of God that ancient Israel would not speak. Actually came up with a different word uh, rather than misspeak this word or take this name in vain. It is the name of God. So who is your shepherd? Well, none other than almighty, all-knowing, all-loving, pre-existent, eternally existent God. He is your shepherd. Then there's the word shepherd. Shepherd. Again, we uh, understand that David is writing this psalm and that David had uh, earned, if you will, the shepherding merit badge. David was a shepherd boy before he was the great king of Israel. You'll recall that when Samuel, the prophet of God, came to Jesse, the father of David, and said, God has sent me here to anoint one of your sons, Jesse got all of his sons and lined them up, and Samuel looked down the line and said, no, he's not here. Is there anyone missing? And Jesse said, well, there is one. He's he's the last one, and he's doing shepherd duty. Well, go get him. Came and... Samuel looked at David and said, this is the one. David understood shepherding because he was a shepherd. You'll remember that David on the battlefield with Goliath, justifying his 
credentials as one who could go and do battle against this nine foot nine inch giant, he said, I have been a shepherd. And when the bear came, I killed him. When the lion came, I killed him. And I'm going to do the same thing with this uncircumcised Philistine. Because God is God. So we understand that David knows shepherding. So it's not unusual for David to use that particular metaphor. The Lord is my shepherd. But don't think that somehow that particular word is just indigenous to David. God uses that word because of David. Well, it includes David, but I want you to know that uh, in, in the New Testament, John chapter 10, Jesus is very clear that he is the good shepherd, that as good a shepherd as David might have been, he cannot and does not compare with the Lord God. He is the good shepherd. Hear these words in John chapter 10, verse 7. Jesus said again to them, Truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundant. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In other words, it turns out that God had more in mind than simply David's history when he adopts this metaphor. He is the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. My shepherd. The Bible is clear that David knew the Lord, that he walked with the Lord, that David was a man of confidence in the Lord, a man who looked to the Lord, a man who treasured the Lord, and a man who knew that the Lord had treasured him. In 2 Samuel 5, David is anointed king, and he is told to shepherd the people of God. But David recognized that he could not do that unless the Lord shepherded him. You may not know this, but it is typical among preachers to refer to ourselves as under-shepherds. Under-shepherds. That's a little inside lingo there. Maybe that's not the way you think about the pastor or pastors of your history, but that's a typical term, under-shepherds. We are under the good shepherd, but we are nonetheless shepherds. David understood that. The Lord is my shepherd. He knew that he could not and would not go anywhere, that he could not and would not experience anything, that the Lord was not with him. Read the Psalms. Read the result of David's uh, writing, and you will recognize that David understood the presence and power of the Lord and the Lord is his. I would say to you that the reason that this particular psalm resonates with so many, dare I say all of us, is because of that very pronoun. The Lord is not his shepherd or her shepherd or their shepherd. He is my shepherd. And you can't have him at the expense of my relationship. We have good news today that God is sufficiently God for all of us. And that all of us can have this God. And we can all have this 
level of intimacy with this God and that he is not simply the God of those people or that crowd or that group of of people or line of thinking or, or, or particular ideology. He's not a Western God or an Eastern God. He's not a Northern Hemisphere or Southern Hemisphere. He's not an Anglo God or a or an African-American God, or a Latin American God, or anything else. He's not regional in any way. He is my shepherd, and he is shepherd to all of us at the same time. And I can't have him at your expense. And you can't have him at my expense. And that is profoundly good news. The Lord is my shepherd. I don't know how you have processed these events of the last three months, but I hope that personal pronoun has meant much to you. That the Lord was with you. That he never left you. You might have been afraid, but he wasn't. You might have felt alone, but he wasn't. You might have felt overwhelmed, but he wasn't. You might have thought, well, we've got a problem. To which I always say, God always says, what's a problem? Think about it. God doesn't have any problems. doesn't have any problems. He's never intimidated by circumstances. He's never out of wisdom. He's never out of power. Never out of authority. He's, he's never out of control. God doesn't have any problems. We have problems. And if God has any problem at all, it's us. Who are always causing problems. But other than that, God has no problems. He's not intimidated by these last several weeks. So that's how the psalm begins. And I want us to consider then three points quickly in these six verses. Only six verses and yet all treasures. We could talk for a long time, but we'll be brief. I want you to know, first of all, that David describes God as provider. Verse 2, verse 3, he is a God who provides green pastures, still waters, a restoration of soul, and one who leads us in the paths of righteousness. God is provider. Again, most of us are not uh, fluent uh, with sheep processes, so I won't belabor this much, but I will tell you that sheep are unique animals in that they have zero defense capabilities. I mean, all, all a sheep can do is run, and they do that very poorly. They just, they don't have any, they have no teeth to bite. They, they are grazers, so their teeth are not designed to somehow be formidable weapons. They have no claws. All, all they have are these little hooves, and, and, and they have no speed. They have no horns. Uh, they don't breathe fire out of their mouth or anything else. They have nothing to defend themselves with. It's a fitting analogy, isn't it? That we are sheep and God is shepherd. We are sheep because over against the enemy, we are powerless. Listen, you can lean on your big bad intellect. You can lean on your big bad history. You can lean on your big bad friends. You can lean on your big bad resources, whatever they are. But against the devil, friend, you are chopped liver. Unless you have a shepherd who will take care of you. Sheep are profoundly innocent. Profoundly weak. And, if shepherds are to be believed, 
profoundly stupid. That's not a word I'm supposed to use around small children, but it is true. They are not the brightest bulbs on the tree. They find themselves wandering off into trouble. You wander away from the herd, you wander away from the shepherd, you're easy pickings. That's been my prayer through all of this, that while we can't meet, don't let our people wander off. Don't don't let them wander into the crosshairs of the enemy. Notice, sheep are dependent upon the shepherd to lead them to sustenance. So green pastures as opposed to brown pastures. Still waters. Sheep, by the way, cannot drink out of running water. It serves as sort of a waterboarding experience. It causes them literally to drown. They, 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 their mouths are such they can only drink from still waters. So shepherds got to find a place where the water runs still. It restores my soul. Uh, the word soul is actually the Hebrew word for life. Some have suggested this is a word for uh, or, or term for revival. Uh, There is a a famous book on the 23rd Psalm written by a guy by the name of Philip Keller. Some of you know the name Tim Keller. Philip Keller, no relation to Tim Keller. Philip Keller, a preacher who for eight years worked as a shepherd, wrote a book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. It's about 60 pages, just right for men. (laughs) A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And in that book, he mentions that What happens to sheep is when they fall over, fall down, it's it's difficult for them to lie down because they have a tendency to, to particularly particularly if they're heavily uh, covered in wool, they have a tendency to roll over and, in a sense, become turtles on their backs. Sheep have no capacity, once they're fully on their backs, to turn back over. In a matter of hours, they'll die from exposure or, obviously, predators. Keller makes the case in Psalm 23, a shepherd looks at Psalm 23, that in fact, that's what's in mind here. He restores my soul. He restores my life. When I am threatened or when I am weak, when I am turned over on my back in my weakened condition, God sets me upright. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. In other words, he leads me in the right paths. He makes sure I go where I'm supposed to go. This is the way God provides. Listen, this is a book that's designed to give you life. Some people react to the Bible and say, I don't like all those rules. Well, these are the rules of life. These are the rules, the rules of benefit. You do this and you will live. And you don't do this and you will expose yourself to predators that you have no understanding of. We are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And when we wander, we find ourselves in the midst of evil men who want nothing more than to steal, kill, and destroy. Secondly, you'll see in Psalm 23 that he is the comforter. He's not only the provider, he's the comforter. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the valley of the shadow of death, The Bible uses that metaphor again and again and again, translated variously, either the the dark of the the valley, the dark valley, that particular, it's an idiom in Hebrew, uh, could mean just the dark valley, 
But here, the English translation translates that phrase, the, the shadow of death, the valley of the shadow of death. You'll remember this about valleys and mountains. If you're an agrarian, uh, the higher you go in elevation, the fewer, the fewer animals they are. The, the higher you go in elevation, the, it's, it's harder. So goats and, to some degree, sheep can find safety high, at higher elevations. Because down below, that's obviously where the water sources typically are, uh, and where predators are. Where do predators go to attack? They go to the watering holes. We've all watched National Geographic enough to know that that's what happens to wildebeests. You know, they cross in the river and crocodiles and all of this, and lions and tigers, and, and they attack because they're around water, which is down at the lower levels. The valley gives the impression of life, and it is. But it's also the most dangerous place for a wild animal because that's where the predators are. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Not because there's not evil. One of the things that we've learned in the pandemic is that there's plenty of evil. One of the things we've learned in the last two weeks as the political unrest has occurred in our country is there's plenty of evil. There's no shortage of evil, and there's never going to be, by the way. We're not going to eradicate evil. But we have the potential or have the possibility to receive resources from the Lord to equip us to cope with and to answer evil. We can be sufficient. We can be full of joy. We can live as God would have us live. We can follow the paths of righteousness, even when it takes us into the valley of the shadow of death. Even when life is hard, incredibly hard, more challenging than we ever thought, we can trust the Lord because the Lord is our comfort. Notice he concludes verse 4, you are with me. I think about this all the time. You know, if, if, uh, if you're a child, let's say you're an 8-year-old boy, and your father's with you, I mean, how worried are you, really? I mean, how worried are you? I mean, my father was, was not a big man. Well, he was overweight, but he wasn't a big man. Uh, but, but, you know, if you're with your father, you're not worried. You're not, you, don't, you, don't, you don't need any money. He's got it, right? You don't need to know how to drive. He's driving. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't need anything. You just don't worry about it. And you don't know who's coming against you or how difficult it may be. In fact, you don't even think about it because you're with your father. Think about that. This point here. You are with me. Who's with you? God. God is with you. And if God is with you, tell me, friends. If God is with you, why do we respond the way we do? I appeal to this repeatedly. I just always think of Jesus. The night that he was betrayed... The soldiers come, high priest. High priest has a slave. You'll recall that Peter's there with Jesus, and he takes his little knife, dagger, sword. They call it a sword, but it's actually a small dagger. And he reaches out, and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's slave. I will fear no evil because Peter has a knife. 
Jesus said, put that up. Took the man's ear and put it back on his head. Because you see, when you're doing business with the devil, a knife isn't going to cut it. No pun intended. You are with me. What Peter didn't know is that the Son of God was the Son of God. And that the Son of God, who was his good shepherd, knew the Father, knew God himself, and believed that God was with him. You remember just the next morning, Pilate said, don't you know I have the authority to crucify you? And Jesus said, you have no authority except it's been given to you. In other words, I know what's going on here. You don't. They don't. Nobody else does, not even my own disciples who have just denied me. But I know because I know the Father, and he is with me. Your rod and your staff, again, we don't know much about shepherding, but the the typical shepherd in that day would carry two instruments. The staff, that's easy. Think Moses with a stick, right? Staff. purpose of the staff was to discipline or corral or correct or guide but the rod the rod is something that would be worn in the belt so it's a it's a, a club think think if you will a baton of sorts a club he would have worn that's the rod now the rod is an aggressive weapon the rod would be used to do, do battle with a lion or a tiger the lion or tiger would not be defeated by a long stick, but rather a club would be necessary. And so the club was necessary for that. And you'll notice he says, you comfort me by your rod and your staff. God has resources that are plenty for us. He comforts us. And he has had that through this whole experience. He continues to provide for us and protect us and give us grace. He is our comfort. He is our strength. So he provides and he comforts us. And then thirdly, you'll see in verse 5, he secures our lives. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Think about that for a moment. When's the last time you were invited to dinner in the presence of your enemies? I mean, it's counterintuitive. You wouldn't even think about it. If that's a group of my enemies, I'm not having dinner there. With those people in that company? No. No, on the contrary, you're going you're gonna to make your dinner preparations somewhere else because in the presence of your enemies is not safe. It's not appropriate. And everything about it screams this is peculiar. And yet that's precisely what it, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You are the one who supplies me. You are my safety. You are my security. He concludes with this lovely, wonderful, treasured phrase that uh, was just sung here. Surely goodness and mercy. Goodness and loving kindness. The word mercy is the Hebrew word hesed. Loving kindness, translated love or loving kindness or steadfast love or mercy. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me 
not just for a season, not just until it gets real hard, but all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord will be our supply forever, forever, forever. He's the one who secures us. So no matter what happens, no matter how it happens, no matter what age it happens, no matter how hard it is or easy it is, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how much we wish it would have been done differently, no matter, the Lord is nonetheless our security. He is our security. As you know, I'm doing a series in Hebrews. We're going to get back to that next week, but... I'm always struck by this passage in Hebrews chapter 11 where he has listed all of these great saints and he comes sort of the end of his list, verse 32, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, so forth. And then beginning in verse 33 of Hebrews 11, he lists experiences of all these people. And I want you to notice this list because there's really two lists. So listen to the list. And pick it up. You can, you can pick it up. Who, verse 33, through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. You'd want to be in that list, right? That's the list you want. But that's not the end of the list. Here's the end of the list. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So what is he saying? He's saying that of all of these wonderful people that he's described in chapter 11, and there's a bunch, they ended up in one of two results. Some were blessed with miraculous experiences. Some were blessed with long lives. Some were blessed with easy lives. Some were blessed with the presence of God that was all happy. And some of them were tortured. Let that sit there a minute. Some were tortured. You know, in today's culture... If you want me to follow a God who allows me to be tortured, you're barking up the wrong tree. You want me to follow a God who's going to allow me to be sawn in two? You want me to follow a God who's not going to provide for me financially? I'm going to have to wear animal skins and live in caves? You want me to follow that God and somehow be happy? You want me to follow that God and somehow be positive? Follow that God and somehow be an evangelist to other people. Come, follow me. Where are you going? I'm going back to my cave. But you see, the point of Hebrews 11 is that all of those people could see beyond this life. 
They could see beyond their fears. They could see beyond their anxieties. They could see beyond their difficulties. And they could see something, actually someone else. They could see that they were being shepherded home. Here's the end of the story. Revelation 7, verse 13. Revelation 7, 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God provides, God comforts, and God secures That's what David said in Psalm 23. And that was true then, and that's true now. And every last one of us anticipate the day when we shall go to glory and the good shepherd will welcome us there. And he will wipe away every tear because some of us will go there in tears. And he will comfort every one of us because some of us will go there very afraid. And he will give us life because all of us will go there having died. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, and I shall not be afraid. Because his rod and staff, they comfort me. Look to Jesus today. He alone is Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the mercies of Christ that we've read, thought about, contemplated this morning. Thank you for your presence, for your sure power and comfort for us. You're our protector, you're our provider, you're our comforter, and you're the one who will see us safely home. Thank you, Father. Thank you that we can look to you and be helped, greatly helped. To God be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray.